Um, nice to have Pally back in the room with us uh, at the chat. Welcome back, my friend. Uh, he submitted some great questions to, uh, today, and uh, I'm going to read you the first one. It's about free will um, and how it started in our evolution. Tom, are we really able to choose our motivation and our intent, or is our selection of available intents and motivations for those intents just a logical outcome of who and what we are at any given point? My view is that the free choice may be in the choosing whether to resist or accept what is happening in the present moment. But then that is also a selection in my decision space, which must have become available at a certain point in my evolution. So is a being conscious if it has at least this one choice of resisting or accepting what is? Yes, if it has a finite decision space, if it has a choice, a meaningful choice that it can make to do this or do that, to be, you know, to, yeah, to do this or do that. If it has that choice, then it's conscious. That is kind of the definition of, that separates what's conscious from what's not, is that a conscious individual has a finite decision space. And if you just have a choice between two things, that's a finite decision space. Very limited decision space, but the way you are looking at these two things to, uh, you know, to what, to uh, kind of grow up or not, to resist or to uh, not resist, as you say, um, that covers a really wide range of choices. There's a whole lot of choices that are subsets of that. Okay, you've bubbled it all up to this one big uh, overarching topic, you know, to resist or not resist, but that really covers uh, lots and lots of various individual choices. So the first part of, your, of that uh, sentence that you read, there was a, are we this or a that? And I didn't find any uh, exclusion between those two. I think we're a this and a that. Both of those apply. It's not uh, that we're one or the other. It's that we're, we're both of those. Uh, you can read that again, Keith. I don't know that I could repeat it entirely, but I just noted that as you were reading it. Uh, it said, well, we this or that, and I thought, mm, really, we're both of those, not uh, not one or the other. But anyway, where does the, where does the uh, free will come from? Free will is a part of consciousness. You can't have free will without a decision space. Okay, You can't have free will without an awareness of that decision space. You can't have... Uh, um, free will without without memory, without time. You can't have you can't have free will without time because then you wouldn't have a choice. A choice means there's a before and after. That's what a choice is. I can do this or that. So I can I, before I made that choice, it was this way. And now that I've made that choice, it's that way. So the fact that you have choices means that there's time. So there's a lot of things that kind of have to all happen together. You know, you can't evolve unless there's time because that again implies a before and after state. They, they all imply awareness. They imply memory. You can't have a before and after state if you don't have memory. Because with no memory, there's no before and after. It's just, everything just is. So there's a lot of things that all come together at the same time to create what we call consciousness, and free will is one of them. Without choices, then uh, you're not conscious. What does consciousness do? Well, consciousness makes choices to do things or not to do things. I can communicate or not communicate. I can grow or not grow, you know, and without that, what is consciousness with no choices? Well, it's maybe just awareness. 
You can have awareness without choices because you're going to be aware without choosing. But you can't be consciousness without choosing. So that's there's a little difference there. So you know, awareness is part of it. And you can probably have time without being conscious too. You know, if you take each one of these things separately, then they kind of seem like they stand alone. But you have to have all of them together in order for you to have consciousness. That's a thing that makes choices, and by those choices, it can change itself. There's a feedback system. It can grow. It can change. It can evolve. So they all kind of come together just with being conscious. If you take any of those basic things away, you don't really have a functioning consciousness. So I don't know that there was some, some path you were conscious and somewhere along the line you got free will. I don't think it's the right way to think of it. It's just that they all come together to create consciousness and then consciousness is. And consciousness has to be able to make choices. And you can separate those choices up into uh, resisting growth or growing up. Uh, and that's uh, one way to look at it. Or you could break that out into a thousand different smaller choices. Um, I don't know. Have I answered your question? Well, I think you did. Thank you, Tom. Um, the, the first part of the question was uh, directed more towards... Uh, when I have in my decision space many individual choices, of course, with different intents and motivations, I usually struggle in, well, deciding what is the best choice if I do it from my head. And uh, essentially, I came to the conclusion that, uh, well, what I see is uh, basically the result of who I am at the moment, right? Yes, and that's, that's that, that was the reason why I tried to, to somehow come to the root of... Uh, what makes my what is really my choice there in any any situation i actually choose whether to resist or not because uh, what i see is just the outcome of who i am at the moment it's who you are at the moment that creates your choices it's your past choices that create your future choices right because of the things you just chose that's why you have these choices rather than different things if you did if you had made different choices earlier You'd have different choices now. So you are an expression of who you are. All those choices uh, will express you. If you're making them out of your being level, then they express you at the core. If you're making them out of your intellect, uh, you know, they're probably expressing your fear, your ego, which may be in your core as well. You know, so it, it just depends. But they're you. That's why you're making those choices that way, and your next choice is going to be because of that choice. They all just build, and you are, one way of looking at who you are is that you're the summation of all the choices you've ever made. That's who you are, and that's why you have the choices that you have right now in front of you to make. It's because of that summation's brought you to this point, and now you're still making choices. Thank you, Tom. You know, Tom, there you just mentioned both the being level and the intellect, which leads very nicely um, into uh, my next question from Gerber on the MBT forum. I like the way this is uh, all falling together today. I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased to see you mention this, Tom. You almost know what I'm going to ask next, but well, of course you do. Um, it's balancing being level with the intellect is the question, and um, it's as follows. In many Eastern religions, there is this idea of non-being and non-doing as a way of living, basically being in a state of no mind. This means living spontaneously, moment to moment, acting from the center of your being and not from your intellect. 
you are supposed to always keep mind clear like space it is not just being careless and reducing yourself to animal i think it's more about keeping logical processing to the minimum and living mindfully and spontaneously and fresh every moment so but i wonder then how practical and realistic this is in mbt terms this is simply living purely out of the being level and limiting the intellectual level to a minimum is this really a good idea can one live mostly on the being level without too much planning and thinking ahead what is the perfect way to root yourself in the being level and only supplement with intellect when necessary or should one keep it balanced okay uh, there's a little bit of a misunderstanding here of intellect and the being level being separate things right okay. now so i'll try to clear that up first and that'll that will make it uh the answer maybe more clear and that is I separate in my lexicon of, of terms and metaphors the being level from the intellectual level. And I talk about the intellectual level is often the expressor of the ego and of your fear and so on. And that the being level is just fundamentally who you are. Well, those two are really overlap a whole lot. Okay? Who you really are can also be ego and fear, and that's who you really are. So you've got the ego and fear at the being level as well. The intellect is just how you're expressing that. And because most of us are full of fear and ego and belief, most of us are just right up to our eyebrows in, in fear, ego, and belief, because of that, most of what we express intellectually is an expression of fear, ego, and belief, because that's mostly what we are. Okay, so now the intellect gets associated with this fear, ego, and belief because that's what it's doing most of the time is trying to, you know, manipulate and rearrange the, you know, things to be the way it likes it and so on. So because that dominates most people, then our intellectual choices tend to, tend to uh, reflect that fear, ego, and belief being dominant in individuals. The, the intellect itself is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a tool that we can use. So there's nothing really negative about the intellect and intellectual choices. The only negative is if those choices are informed by fear, you see, and ego, and belief, expectations, all that stuff. Then that makes, uh, you know, that intellect then working on the negative side rather than on the love side. Okay, on the fear side instead of the love side. When you get rid of that fear, get rid of it all so that you don't have the ego and the belief and the expectations, then you have your cognitive function, your intellectual function, if you will, is part of your being level. Now, see, that sounds like I just, you know, did a, one of those things where you shuffle the walnuts around and then you say, well, where's, you know, where's the... Where's the being level? You know, where's the intellect? I just switched them around. But it's a the intellectual function can be both at the being level or what we call the intellectual level. We only I only make this difference between the two is because in the average person, there's so much fear and ego that the intellect is almost always serving fear and ego. But that doesn't really mean that it's the intellect's fault, that's the fear and ego's fault, you see. So what happens when you get rid of the fear and ego is that you can still think. It's not like the intellect is only fear and ego. When you get rid of the fear and ego, you can think fine. Matter of fact, you think better. You think more clearly. 
you still have that logical capability to look for your car keys in the last place you remember having them. You know, that's that's a that's your intellect. You know, a little logic there to help you, uh, uh, you know, find those car keys. You still have that function. It's just it's no longer serving fear. So at the being level, you have an intellect. You can make choices based on logic, on assess assessing things. Okay, that's not a wrong thing to do. It's only a problem when that's done out of the fear and ego. So it's not that you should live your life without having the intellectual component. It's just that people realize that their intellectual component is where most of their fear and ego stuff is being is being used. You know, that's where it comes out. Okay, it comes out at the emotional level sometimes too. You 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 know, you roar when you get something that just hits you wrong, so you you immediately get angry without thinking about it. Your intellect didn't say, "Oh, I should get angry now." It just bubbles out of you. Well, that's that's this negativity at the being level. But for the most part, we have learned to stuff that down to a point where it doesn't happen. We we um, have learned to socialize ourselves to keep most of that stuff under control. So where our ego and fear and belief come out is in our intellects, the things we say, the choices we make. Um, that's why people say that it would be a good thing to do to turn that intellect off and just live out of the being level. That way you're not going to make so many bad choices based on your fear. See? You're just going to make them spontaneously, and they're all going to come out of your being level, but you've got that same fear at the being level. You've just got it stuffed down to a point that it doesn't jump out. Well, I'm not sure that that's a great, uh, you know, I mean, that's probably making progress, and it may be a good training thing to do, but I don't think that's an end point that one should aspire to, to do that. Use your intellect. It's a tool you have. Do things that make sense. You have to think about things. You have to think about other people. You have to understand those people in the sense of how it is you can really help them. What can you do in this world that will lower entropy for the whole, for yourself, for other people? That takes an intellect to think about all that stuff. And when you do that at the, you know, when you when you do that without the fear. It's it's fine. If you do that with the fear, then you're going to make those decisions, those intellectual decisions based on the fear. So it's really the fear we need to get rid of, not the intellect. The only reason that the, that using the that, that, uh, trying to just live in the moment now and not really think about things is because we don't trust that intellect because we know it's going to express our fear and our ego. Whereas we got that fear and ego to stuff down where nobody can see it. You know, at our being level, we don't, uh, we got a lid on that. So that's the, that's the only reason. So in a way it makes you maybe a better person and it'll teach you to, to uh, not live in the future or live in the past. It'll teach you to live in the now, which is a very good thing to be focused in the now and what you're doing rather than off in the past or the future. So there's some good elements to it, to that strategy of just being now. Not that's a bad strategy. It's got good elements, but it's it's not necessarily the way you think. You can be an intellectual at the being level. You can get rid of all your fear and ego and be very intellectual and think very logically at the being level. Logical thinking isn't the problem. Fear's the problem.
Right. Thanks for clarifying that, Tom. I think that was um, a really great answer. Um, that that I could I could I could certainly follow that, and I see the, the difference now. So thank you for that. Um, talking of uh, great questions, uh, Greg P uh, has got a couple more for you. I'm going to turn it over to him. Um, <clears throat> all right. Yeah. So this uh, is really related to some of the stuff I was talking about before. And as I kind of go through some of these spiritual lessons on like what I am and what my relation to reality is, <clears throat> I get uh, <clears throat> this sense that my responsibility for my reality is more than I thought it was before. Like before I might've seen it as some certain percentage. And then there's all these outside influences that I have to respond to. But now I see it as more like maybe even 90% or higher of what I experience is somehow derived from my consciousness. And uh, I even have a friend that says it's tells me it's a, it's a hundred percent, although I'm not, I'm not totally sure if I agree with that. Uh, part of the confusion here might actually be like the different levels we were talking about, like the hundred percent of it deriving from the one source. Uh, but anyway, I, an interesting side effect I noticed of this is that I was, when I thought of compassion at some point, it was mainly about, uh, oh, there's these bad things happening in the world, and I wish that I could help these people, like, you know, stop having these bad things affect them. But as my own sense of responsibility for my reality increases, it also uh, changes how I view compassion, because then it's like, oh, well, these people, they're experiencing bad things. It's also their responsibility. So if I want to help them, it's about uh, how do I, you know, help them, help them empower themselves, so my question is, uh, two questions on that. Uh, what, if you could make a percentage estimate on like what uh, percentage of responsibility do you have for your reality that you experience versus anything outside of you? And then the second question, if you could kind of address that, that bit on uh, compassion and how that relates to you helping others. Okay. Um you have responsibility for those things for which you have some control, some influence, some ability to make a difference. There's a lot of things in your life for which you have no influence. They just happen, and you deal with them, and you cannot influence them at all. And you don't have responsibility for those things. You have only responsibility for how you react to them, how you, you know, what the choices you make. That's what you're responsible for, is your choices. So you see poor people suffering somewhere in the world. The question would be, is there anything you can do about it? Well, of course, there's always some things that you can do about it. And in as much as those things, you know, that you could do about it, that you should then do them. You can feel some responsibility for that. Well, you can, uh, you know, always send some peace and love, you know, with your intent. And they will get that. And that will help. So you can always do something like that. Always have love in your heart for those people and compassion for those people. That's something that you can do. And just that is helpful some also. Another major thing that you can always do that's your responsibility is you can grow yourself. Get rid of your own fear and ego because as you do that, that's going to help everybody else because you will help other people do that by your doing it. As you do it, it will influence other people to do Similar things. So that's another thing you can do uh, to help the world be a better place is get rid of your own fear and ego. So there's another responsibility. Um, but you are 
only one avatar amongst seven and a half billion avatars on this planet. Uh, not to mention all the avatars that have lived previously in history that are still there legacy lives on here because of the choices they made. We're still doing things based on that. And you are not in charge. So other people will make decisions that will affect you. And you're not responsible for those decisions. See, So if somebody else decides, you know, well, I don't know, whatever, do, does something that affects you. You know, some... Uh, Somebody uh, buys out the company you work for, and they let go, you know, most of the employees and put in their own people. Well, you're not responsible for that. You know, you just, that's just the way it is. You deal with it. So a lot of the things that we have to deal with are because we're one of a lot of, of entities all making free will choices, most of them making free will choices based on fear and ego and beliefs, and we have to deal with all of that. Our responsibility is to deal with it well, deal with it in a way that helps everybody, which is grow ourselves up, and to do those things we can do that matters. Maybe you can give to charity. Maybe you can uh, become a doctor without borders that, uh, you know, services uh, people in those places. Maybe uh, you can just bring it up in conversations about the attitudes that create those kinds of problems and how they need to be changed, you see, which helps other people think about it. There's lots of things you can do, and many of them may seem small. I think that's the, that's the problem that often haunts us, is that we see this huge problem, and it seems like what we can do about it is so minor that it hardly matters, you know, even doing it, because it's such a tiny piece. But that's not true. We can do as much as we can do. You know, we can do what... what um, you know, what does fall to us, what we can control, which is our choices. And that's it. You can't control anybody else's free will choices. Well, maybe you can, but then you're taking away their free will. That's not a good thing to do. You're overriding somebody else's choices. So that's kind of the way it is. And you just have to figure we live in this world all together. It is what it is because of all of us and all of our fear and all of our ego and all of our beliefs. That's what makes this world like this. And do your part to be a little bit of light that shines somewhere in that, in that mess. And that's basically the biggest thing you can do, the most help you can be other than specific things like being a doctor without borders or giving money to charity or, you know, housing uh, some refugee, you know, in your home or there's some things you might be able to do, but for the most part, there's very little we can do in those situations, very little specific things we can do. And um, your responsibility kind of ends where your choices end. If it's not your choice, then you can't be responsible for other people's choices. And you can maybe force other people to make certain choices. And sometimes that might be a good thing, like you force your three-year-old uh, not to go out and play in the street. All right, you're forcing choices. But for the most part, if these are other adults with free will, you know, making adult decisions, then you forcing them to make different decisions is something you ought to think about hard before you, you do that because you don't want to overrun other people's free will. You can't force anybody to grow up. And if you don't help people grow up, then you've only, you know, you've only uh, done something temporary. You've only affected a symptom, not a cause. So that's kind of the, 
the nature of it. You know, it's not that uh, we're responsible for everything or we're responsible for nothing. We're responsible for all the choices we have and making good ones. And making good ones mean make choices that can help people. Making choices that do not raise entropy in the system or in your local environment. You're, you're responsible for low entropy choices. And that pretty much sums it, sums it up. And those choices could be have small effect or could have a large effect. But that's not your thing. You don't have to change the world. You really only have to change yourself and give as much as you can give to the world to help it change, to give it an environment in which it can more easily change. And that's really what you're responsible for. Um, so I think this friend of mine who was saying that I'm 100% responsible for what happens to me, he was taking the viewpoint that if it's kind of like a law of attraction type thing almost, or right. well, maybe, maybe not almost, maybe exactly. He, like mm -hmm. saying, oh, well, if you see somebody who's experiencing some horrible situation, they must be, uh, you know, giving off whatever vibration or, or have chosen that mm -hmm. somehow or another. And therefore, right. you know, their, their fault that, that that happened to them. Yes, well, you know, that kind of denies the fact that everybody else has free will too. You know, if, if your free will ran the planet, then you would be, you know, you, you could be called to atone for everything that happened to you. Your free will doesn't run the planet. So you have to realize that there's some what I'll call random components in you know, in your life and the things that happen to you because the choices somebody else makes, you see, and that just happens. It is not the case that everything that happens to you is a result of your own intent modifying future probability. Now, much of what happens to you in a, in a bigger picture, you know, if you just look at the kind of stuff that's happened to you over the last decade, well, we can say that more of that was influenced, let's say, by your intent to modify future probability, whether you were doing it purposely or not, still, yes, you create a certain amount of your reality. But that's not all of it. That's just a piece of it. And over a bigger piece, you can see that as a as kind of a, an influence that's always there. It's what you're bringing to it. But that's not all of it. There's also the person that just you know, uh, you just happen to be at the wrong place at the wrong time, so you get run over by a truck, you know, because not because that's just what you needed in your life or what all the other people around you needed and that your karma was to be run over by a truck. It's just that truck just happened to have a tire blow out at that place and ran over you. So it's just bad luck. So there are random components that are going on all the time. It's a mix of those. Yes. Now, if you are really in touch with your intuition and you're paying attention then you might have gotten a little warning. Don't stand on that street corner. Don't don't wait for that bus today. You know, walk walk to work. Don't stand there on that corner and wait for the bus. It's not a good thing to do. And if you were, and if you were uh, in touch, you may have then gone someplace else and not been run over by that truck. So yes, you can influence even the random things that are going on. You can you can dodge some bullets sometimes, but that doesn't mean that you can dodge. All the bullets all the time. There is random process, and you will have to deal with that process. If you're in tune with yourself and you're, you're working from love and not fear, 
you will be so much more successful at dealing with that process that you begin to believe that only good things ever happen to you, and that's because you're controlling your reality, you see. So somebody who is angry and upset and stressed will go in and grab hold of a grocery cart by the handle and pick up a, a flu bug from it and get sick. But you who are not stressed and angry and at, at peace, you'll touch the same cart and walk off, but you won't get the flu. Because your immune system will knock it right out, you see. So in that way, yes, you make your own reality. That was just accident. That there was flu bugs on that handle was just random. But you deal with it better because you are not negative. You see, you're positive. So it makes things just work out for you. You don't get sick very often. You don't have these problems because you're positive. You have a good attitude. But I wouldn't say that everything that happens is something that you've brought. You're not the master controller of your environment. There are other people who just will do things and they will just happen to you because they were not probable things. It was nobody could warn you even in your intuition. It was just random. Um, I shouldn't say random, but it was uh, you know free will decisions that were made by others that just immediately then affect you. And that's life. Deal with it. So, yes, it's, there's that influence, but it's not a complete and total influence. It's not 100% at all. And if I had to make a percentage, it's hard to tell. It depends on how big or how small it is. You know, if it's just whether you get the flu or not, well, that's probably uh, 75 80% your own attitude. If it's whether or not, uh, you know, some drunk happens to, you know, swerve to the right instead of the left at that moment, and crashes your car, well, that may have been something that was pretty unpredictable. It just happened, and you happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. And that's not really something that you made. It just happened to you. It's not like, well, I needed to be hit by my car because of this and this. It's not all that way. That's the idea that we live this life that's controlled totally by karma and by, you know, our own intents, and we, we don't. We're in here with lots of other people, and we sometimes do things to those people. And it's, you know, your responsibility is just to make good choices. So it sounds like there's a, there might be a bit of confirmation bias going on on some of the smaller things. But maybe I could go back and tell him that if he wants to say he's 100% responsible, that would be the very long-term uh, stuff like the overarching picture. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this, yeah. So this yeah, there's a bias. What you're doing, your own intent creates a bias on the probabilities to be to your favor if you have a very positive intent. But it's just a bias. It doesn't keep them from happening. You know, it just biases some way. Sometimes the probability is too great for your bias to make much difference. Something was a million to one, and your bias moves it up to 101, Still not likely to happen, even though you had a you know quite an effect on it. It didn't affect it enough not to happen. So you don't have total control over what's going on, and all the things that happen to you aren't because of things that you make. Now, just like we talked before with uh, Polly, you know, you are the sum result of all your choices. So in a way, you can say, "Well, I am who I am because of all those choices." So that's that's me affecting me. Well, that's true. You do have a lot of influence, and you have the your intent can modify probability. That's an influence. 
but they're influences. They're not, you know, they're not absolute things that you will, you know, control all of your environment yourself. So in the long run, those influences all kind of add up to see a, a bias. You know, if you've got a bias, if you've got something that's diverging with a very small angle because there's a little bias there, well, you don't notice it too much right in the beginning. But if you go far enough away, you know, that, that little bit of bias in the angle starts to make a huge difference later on. So biases do add over time, but still, they're just biases. They're nudges, if you will. They change the probability, but they don't define what the solution is going to be, what the final outcome is. Um, so I had another question on here that really uh, is really about the same thing because I've noticed that, uh, you know, as I start to feel somewhat more connected to things and I get in this space where, like, there's more synchronicities happening, uh, some of the synchronicities seem seem to kind of violate a little bit of this, you know, this causality and free will of other people. Like, uh, you know, like if something pops into my head uh, one day and then the next day this something appears right before me that correlates with it quite a bit. It, it appears that there was like some connection there, but it turns mm -hmm. out that whatever appeared in front of me was sent to me by somebody else and they, they would have had to send it like a week ago. So either they, either, you know, their free will is somehow being manipulated or, or my free will and me thinking that I was the one that thought of it is actually untrue and that it, you know, came to me. So you see what I'm saying? There's some like sort of a, some of these synchronicities seem to go against, uh, you know, my understanding of the logical flow of things sometimes. Yes, well, that's because there are some things that are probable and that are just good guesses. You know, if you're a prognosticator, you could say, well, this is likely to happen this way just because that's highly likely. And there are some things that can be nudged, even if they aren't highly likely. Um, they can be nudged. So let's say the system wants to make a point to you that uh, there's a larger, you know, that it's that it's a larger system that has a bigger view of what's going on than you do. So it shows you something that's going to happen. You just get this this uh, intuition that such and such is going to happen, and then there it is. It happens. Well, okay, the system probably just in, engineered that to make the point to you that this is possible that it's a larger system, that these sorts of anomalies can happen. So, you know, it could be things like that. Um, hard to say. But yes, everybody has free will. But that doesn't mean that some things aren't predictable. People are very predictable. It's just amazing. You know, we think we're not predictable. You know, we could, we could act anyway on all sorts of things. But, you know, if you, if you take a, a, a test that judges parts of your personality or whatever, and then six months later, you take the test again. You have a whole bunch of questions, and you probably don't answer but half of them the same way. But somehow, the whole conglomeration of all the answers you do answer comes out to the same result. You see? And we're just very predictable. Not necessarily to the detail, but in a, in a larger sense. We have a lot of history. And that makes us a lot more predictable than we think. We've made a lot of choices. And that historical record has all of those choices that we've made from all of those circumstances and what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. And predicting us isn't nearly as difficult as you might think because 
we have so much data that the system has a real good idea of what you're going to do in a general way, even if it doesn't have you know, the precise details. But then, if it's got the general idea, then all it needs to do is nudge the detail, and it'll get a precise fit. So it kind of makes it look like there's, you know, free will maybe is not working, because how could I know things in advance? You know, I was told when I was 14 year, years old, you know, that, uh, you know, how many children I would have, that I would get married, that, you know, do these different kinds of things, and they all worked out precisely. Well, how can that happen, you know, that many years ahead? You know, that's impossible, right? How could you predict what two people that were totally lived in different parts of the country, you know, and so on, that, that would make a connection? Well, it's just nudging. And now as I look back, after the fact, I can say, oh, yeah, I can see that just suddenly I had this need, you know, to move there or to go here or this thing happened or that job that I had that I was sure I was going to get that would have taken me to a different place. For some reason, that just folded. I mean, the people told me, yeah, you're in. We're going to have you. It's just a matter of the paperwork. And then a week later, sorry, you know, you didn't get the job. And how'd that turn on a dime? Well, it turned out that really wasn't the direction I was supposed to go in. I was supposed to go someplace else. So a little nudge was made here or there and put me back on the right track. So things like that can happen. So even things that look like they're denying free will aren't that hard to, aren't that hard to nudge. So uh, the way you're saying that uh, makes me wonder, as part of, part of any of your NPMR activities, have you been a nudger? Yes. That's about all I have to say about that. <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll leave that one there, shall we? <laughs> um, you know, Tom, we get a lot of uh, requests every week, uh, emails mainly from people who want to take part in the fireside chat and want to know how to submit questions. So I just thought I'd take this opportunity to tell them that they can always email questions to us, or there is also somewhere for submitting questions on the MBT forum. If people do issue, uh, submit a lot of questions and down the line, we'd certainly be interested in them signing up and, and joining us here in the chat room. So um, Tim C is one of these these people that uh, wants to get involved in the fireside chat. He's emailed me some interesting questions this week and i'm going to uh, read them out to you but i'll read them out to you one at a time tom has entropy been around since the very beginning of consciousness from what i've gathered the lcs started out without partitioning pieces of itself off so was entropy born once the partitioning of individuated units of consciousness began yeah the answer to that is no it's always been around when right. you had a when you had the first primordial potential to be conscious there was also random process that it had to escape. You know, it had to uh, to move in ways that were uh, uh, lower entropy, and it had choices that could it could have been higher entropy. Now you think of the, the thing called um, what is it? Uh, um, it's like spontaneously out of chaos, out of randomness, structures can evolve. That's really a, a function of chaos theory. If you have all this chaos that seems to be totally unintelligible, just everything going every which way, all this randomness, and then suddenly right in the middle of the randomness are these little areas of structure where it's calm, where there's, there's no chaos, there's order. So order just forms in the middle of chaos, and this just happens by itself, spontaneously. Okay? 
So these sorts of things happen. But the chaos is very high entropy. The order is very low entropy. So consciousness was born out of one of these high entropy, you know, uh, sets or systems of chaos. That's just what it came out of. And it just happened to get the right, the right pieces together at the right time in the right way that it created a little island of structure and of order and it was able to build on that. Um, there's a, there's a, um, there's a science. Actually, it's a mathematics of um, emergent complexity. So you can look up, you can Google emergent complexity. And that's basically the same thing. It studies how order, how complex things can be built up out of chaos just naturally. And the reason that works is that chaos is very random. Well, random stuff can go together all sorts of ways. And sometimes those ways tend to be, you know, tend to form a structure. And if that structure is not volatile, then it can build on that structure. Once you have structure, then there's a place to build. So you can get complexity um, out of chaos. So the chaos represents the high entropy. So there was always entropy in the process of, of consciousness evolving. Okay. Is that 100 monkeys or the monkeys with the typewriters doing Shakespeare an example of that? <laughs> uh, the uh, monkeys writing Shakespeare, I think, was just a probability example because you can actually, you know, write down what's the probability that uh, a certain number of monkeys could, uh, you know, write Shakespeare because you just have every keystroke is random and what's the probability out of 10 monkeys, you know, punching random keystrokes that they'd end up with Shakespeare? Well, it's a very low, no <laughs> low probability, you know, 10 to the minus, you know, 45 or something like that. So. But it is actually finite. It's not zero, but it is so unlikely that it wouldn't be any worth anybody's while to sit around and watch the monkeys type, you know, waiting for Shakespeare to arrive because uh, <laughs> things that are that low in probability hardly ever happen. You'd have to wait maybe 10 or 20 billion years or maybe a trillion years before uh, you'd even get a, a little piece of Shakespeare. Anyway, so that... That is all that, that thing. Now, the hundredth monkey is a little different. The hundredth monkey idea is the idea that, that uh, consciousness communicates to other consciousness. We're all communicating with each other all the time. And members of a group tend to communicate within that group about you know, the group's business, and particularly the, at the species level. So the... Idea was, and one of the ways I've heard this explained was, you teach, you know, you teach a bunch of monkeys how to how to wash their food. This was the one example that I've read. Okay, that they, uh, you teach monkeys how to wash their food because that way they don't get sick as often. They learn to wash their food. They kind of get it after a while that that's they're not getting sick anymore. So they do that, and then eventually you find monkeys washing their food other places, other kinds of monkeys. You see, so. It's, it's like somehow, because this group learned it, another group picks up the trait. Um, another example of that was uh, monkeys that were taken from a particular place. They were moved to a different place. They were taught things, how to do things, and then they found that the monkeys who were left behind, if you go back and take a, another sample of the monkeys left behind, they could learn to do the things that the monkeys who got there first much more quickly. You see, they didn't have to go through the same number of hours of process of learning. 
And that was because they mind-to-mind communication is basically what the hunter's monkey is about, is that within groups, uh, there is communication going on between different consciousnesses. And, of course, MBT supports that, that uh, we all can communicate with, with all other consciousnesses. That's just a part of being conscious is that we can, we're, we're netted. All right. All right. Thanks, Tom. Um, in a low entropy society, is culture a byproduct or is it more likely to be a society without culture? Well, that's an interesting question. In a very low entropy society, you have everyone uh, caring really about everybody else. And you have a lot of freedom, max, the maximum amount of individual freedom in that kind of a situation. Um, you have the largest decision space in that kind of situation. So what would that, well, so what would that uh, mean for culture? I guess it would mean that your culture would not be very restrictive. So there wouldn't be a lot of things that culture says you have to do it this way and not that way because that's those restrictions of culture tend to limit decision space. Whereas you maybe could do these things, but your culture teaches you that that's a bad thing to do, so you don't do those things. So you'd, you'd have maybe less limitations from your culture, but you'd have a more you'd have not more limitations, but you'd have your own set of limitations that you put on yourself because you care about other people. So you wouldn't go steal somebody else's stuff because you care about other people. You say it's not all about you. So I think all in all, you probably would have a culture that was that was uh, milder, less um, less restrictive, less constraining kind of a kind of a culture. But there'd still be a culture there. There'd be a culture of love. There'd be a culture of being helpful. There'd be a culture of uh, you know, helping other people just because it was the right thing to do. So there'd still be some culture. I don't think it would go away, but it would probably be harder to define and become a little more uh, in the background and not so uh, coercive as, as many cultures are. I mean, mostly we think of cultures by their constraints. You know, how does one culture differ from the other? Well, we look at that in terms of constraints. You know, what can you do in one and you can't do in another one? And the constraints would probably mostly disappear because you wouldn't need cultural constraints. Individuals would have all the constraints they needed because they'd care about somebody else. The reason that we have laws is because we have people who are not making their choices out of love. So the law is there. It's part of our culture that we have a culture of, of laws because the laws are required because people aren't um, low entropy. Therefore, the laws have to say, you, this, is a, this is illegal, you can't do this, uh, so that you protect us from the higher entropy individuals. You protect everybody else from the higher entropy individuals. But if there are no high entropy individuals, what do you need law for? You say, well, you'd still need some sorts of law, but probably criminal law would kind of disappear out of your culture because there wouldn't be any criminals. So, yeah, it would be different. It would be a culture that would be a very low-key, non-constraining sort of culture of caring, because the people themselves would have the would put constraints on themselves. They wouldn't need a culture to add constraints, because the people themselves would put the necessary constraints there, 
And as far as the unnecessary constraints, they get rid of all of those. Because like I say, in a low entropy uh, society, you have more freedom than uh, any other kind of society, more personal freedom. It's going to be interesting to see how the cultures both differ and have many similarities and how they all come together under the MBT thing when we do our cultural connection tour. And I think that's the most exciting thing for Donna and I when that concept came up. And um, we're, we're thrilled to be seeing uh, how that one's going to work out and uh, how it's going to go. So it'll be interesting. Um, Tim's final question is, can intuition lead you down the wrong path and astray? Basically, do we know what is right based on our gut feelings? Yes, indeed, intuition can lead you down the wrong path. And that's a problem in a couple of ways. One way is it's very hard for most people to separate what is their intuition and what is their intellect. Because they'll get an idea they want to do something, but is that because that's what they want to do? That's the kind of their, their intellect making that decision, or is that an intuitive decision? So it's hard to separate those two. The two are always intermingled. Remember, you get data, and you deal with the data. You don't get the source of the data. You just get the data. So this data comes from your intellect. There's data comes from your, from your uh, intuition, and those two all look the same to you. <laughs> you know, they're just data. And you have to deal with them. And it's easy to confuse those two sources. So that's one reason one should always be skeptical of one's intuition is you really don't know where that information is coming from a lot of the time. Now, the more you evolve, the less confused you are on that point and the more you do know where the data is coming from. But you don't ever know anything with certainty. Usually there's always some uncertainty. So that's one thing. The second thing is that if you use that intuition to the point that you are getting information, say, out of the non-physical, too much. You're relying on it too much, right? Should I do this? Should I do that? You know, is this a good day to, you know, is this a good day to make friends? Is this a good day to stay home? You know, and you, you start to run your life based on your Ouija board or on your crystal ball or on what the stars tell you or something else, and you stop making your own decisions. You stop uh, you know, owning your own free will. Instead, you're letting some other process, whether you're flipping a coin or getting a horoscope or whatever, you let some other process uh, making your choices for you. What will happen is that the system will start giving you some really bad choices just to teach you a lesson that you need to be skeptical and you need to make your own choices not let something else take your choices. And at that time, the system may go out of its way just to give you some misinformation that you land flat on your face because of it. And you'll think, well, wow, that was my intuition or that's what such and such said or that's what my guides told me to do. And that's just misinformation to tell you to take charge of your own life. Stop relying on something else to make your choices for you. Always remain skeptical of all the information you get and make your best choice based on your quality. Uh, pretty good questions from Tim, huh? Um, thanks for submitting them, Tim. We, uh, we appreciate those and we look forward to uh, your further involvement in the Fireside Chat. Right, Parley, you have a couple more questions. I'm going to read your question on growth, suffering, and the technology of humor. Uh, Tom, growth is, in my experience, always about facing the uncertain. 
and therefore unpleasant by default. Is there some way you know of how growth may be made less unpleasant? Maybe humor is, could that be a technology which allows us to accept our own changes more easily? Is resistance the only thing that creates suffering in the form of stress, frustration, or fear? Okay, there was really about four questions all rolled up into that, <laughs> uh, that thing. So, um, yeah. let's see. Let's try to unravel them. Um, first, uh, humor is always good because it helps you be skeptical. It helps you not take yourself so seriously. And that is a good thing to be. Uh, if you take yourself too seriously, you start to lose your skepticism about what you're doing and what's going on, and uh, that can be a that can be a problem. So never take yourself but so seriously. You're here to interact, do the best you can, but don't overthink the problem. You know, don't uh, get wrapped up around uh, the uh, analysis of what's happening. That's better just to kind of have some humor and go on. Uh, so that's that's part of it. I I not heard technology. Uh, as a descriptor of, of humor, but uh, I guess that's fair enough. You know, it's a it's a way of approaching of, of approaching problems and seeing things where you can laugh rather than uh, take it too seriously. So that's the part. What was the first part, Keith? That had a separate uh, that had a separate question. Um, growth is, in my experience, always about facing oh, uncertainty. Yes. Right, uncertainty, and how do we do it without it being so miserable? Yes. Well, the way that you grow and not have it to be uh, uh, such a hard or tough thing to do is you just have to grow up when you're at the when you are when you have a long way to go when you have a whole lot of fear and ego in your way it's just going to be tough it's going to be hard to deal with it you know it's going to be painful because that's the point you're trying to get rid of this sense of control or, or this fear or that fear, and fear is a is a unpleasant thing. So when you're really dealing at a gross level with your fear, it's going to be unpleasant because fear is unpleasant, and your need to control is unpleasant, and your anger is unpleasant, and all of those things kind of aren't fun to do. But once you get done with that, once you, once you have grown up some, it gets more and more pleasant. And eventually, when you've gotten rid of not all your fear, but a fair number of them, at least the ones that cause you the most trouble, then growing up becomes more fun. It's not painful. It's not difficult. It actually becomes a real fun game, you know, to figure out what it is you, you know, what is what is this this fear? Why did I feel that anxiety? Uh, you know, why does this upset me? And then try to find it and isolate it and tear it up by the roots. That becomes more of a puzzle and then a and then a, a, a quest. And it's a lot of fun and you feel good about it. And you make success more easily. Whereas in the beginning, success is slow and it's it uh, it's like to rip that fear out by the roots takes a lot of courage. It's a hard thing to do. So just continue growing up is what makes it is what makes it easier. And, of course, don't take yourself so seriously. Realize you're working on yourself. You are expected to make mistakes. You're not expected to be perfect. You don't judge yourself. You just accept yourself 
and you see that here's some things I need to change, and then you work on them. You don't necessarily, you know, grind your teeth and shake your head and feel awful because you're a failed person and you're not doing it right. Let all that negativity, that's just more fear. That's the fear that you're, that you're inept. That's the fear that you can't do it right. That's the fear that, uh, you know, you can't grow up. So the more fear you have, the more unpleasant it is. The less fear you have, the more pleasant it is. Does that answer that clearly enough for you, Pali? Yes, thank you very much, Tom, for this view. Maybe one follow-up uh, question. My my question was mainly uh, aimed to, well, I see many very good comics, uh, I mean, people who do comedy, stand-up comedy, who can bring forward very difficult topics uh, in, well, onto which people can then look deeper than they are usually used to. And uh, that was the whole idea of, uh, well, humor as being a good technology to mm-hmm. help other people look deeper into something. Yep. Humor is a really good thing. You know, when I wrote my books, I put a lot of humor in it just because I realized that the humor is, is kind of a release, a relax. And people tend to get bound up tight with with their intellects. And if you just give them a break to, to laugh a little bit, to relax a little bit, to think of something else, to see it in a different perspective, that just helps a lot. Otherwise, you get wound up so tight that you can't really make any progress. It's really hard. And that's that's all the fear and the ego all gets jammed up against one another and you just don't see any way out of it. But if you can just laugh at it or just go take a walk, you know, go do something else for a while, then come back to it, it's easier than it is if you just keep hammering it. You can get too intense on something. If you're working on something, you get really, really intense you probably your efficiency goes way down as far as making progress goes. So if you find yourself in a situation where you just feel like you're banging your head against the wall and nothing's working, well, go do something else. You know, go you know, go laugh at something. Go take a walk. Go get in a cold shower. You know, do something to distract you so you're out of that space. And then when you look at it again, new. You know, like a lot of people would say, well, go you know, go sleep on it. You know, what that means is you let it go. When you wake up, suddenly you've got a whole new different set to work with than you had before because most of what was stymieing you was your own log jam of, of uh, intensity. So getting rid of the intensity is a, is a good thing most of the time. It helps people understand and deal with the data. You can't process the data if you're all clogged up with fear and with intensity. Then the processing just kind of disappears. You know, Tom, I think it's the same with the fireside chat. If we did three hours of totally intense stuff without a few injections of humor, it's it's harder work for people to to watch. So it's it's good. And um, and and talking about humor, <laughs> I have to mention a comment uh, that that came to me. It was brought to my attention by Ramon, but a few other people have said it. Um, <laughs> in the April fireside chat. Um, one of your dogs started barking behind you. You know where I'm going with this. We talked about this in the week. Um, one of your dogs started barking, and just at that moment, you closed your eyes, and the dog stopped. I think it was Strider. Um, and maybe it was just a coincidence, but um, inquiring minds want to know. <laughs> well, to be honest, I can't really tell you the answer to that, not because I won't tell you, because I don't really know, because I don't. My reality isn't that 
uh, pigeonholed to where I do this or I do that and I do that. I tend to do a lot of things at once, and I tend to do them without thinking about them. It's more of the living in the moment sort of thing that was brought up earlier. You know, you just you just kind of interact with the world as it is. And as I close my eyes, I could have been sending something to Strider and coming up with a better answer or trying to understand the individual perspective that was answering that you know, was asking that question. Because I try to get the individual perspective so I can give an answer that's actually meaningful rather than one that's kind of off the mark. So I could have been doing two or three things at the same time, and I would never really notice because I don't parse it out as this, 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 and this. It's just the way it is. It all kind of happens at once. So when you parallel process, sometimes it's hard for you to know exactly what you're doing when. You just do it because it seems like the right thing to do, and you don't really worry about, about each thing in its own pigeonhole. So I really can't answer it. I don't know. It could have been. That at that time, I sent a little message to Strider, uh, you know, not now. You know, we'll deal with that later. Um, could have, may not, I don't know. It's just I do those sorts of things all the time with people, uh, with connections, with things I'm doing, and three or four things going on at once is just not all that unusual. And I don't slice them out to the point that I could really tell you later what I do or what I don't do. It either works or it doesn't, and I go on. So there you have it. That's 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 the answer to the uh, to the dog barking <laughs> question that has been bothering everyone all week. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So maybe you know I don't know. Maybe not. 